0: I'm driving through a small northeast Iowa town. It's October, right before the 2022 midterm. It's a beautiful fall Friday evening. This part of Iowa, right next to the Mississippi River, it's such a pretty place to be this time of year. As I pass through the main street of McGregor, I see about a dozen protesters holding abortion rights signs. You usually don't see this in a small town, so I turn the car around, get out, and approach them. Aaron Cubbin says since Roe v. Wade was overturned in June, they're here most Friday nights with signs in hand.
1: A lot of, you know, thumbs ups, a lot of honking of horns, but we definitely get the middle finger several times, you know, every time we come out.
0: Their signs say abortion saves lives. Regulate dick, not Jane. And women vote like your life depends on it, because it does. In July, one of the protesters was assaulted by a man who was anti-abortion Police said the group was lawfully demonstrating when that unprovoked assault occurred. And Cubbin tells me being here every week demonstrating is important.
1: You know, that's that's what we're here for, too. We want people to know that Iowa is not a monolith and it's not just the cities where people feel, you know, this way. It's rural Iowa, too, and it's important for, for people to see protests in small towns.
0: She moved to Iowa about a decade ago, and like many Democrats and independents in the state that I've talked with, she can't believe how much the state has
1: changed. Since I've moved to Iowa, I don't think my, the candidates that I vote for have won in, in any of the elections I voted in, and I've voted in all of them. And it's hard to tell if that was a friendly honk or an angry honk. I, I think
0: most of the honks are friendly. Iowa's voting record has changed dramatically over the last decade, thanks in part to a populist message that flipped rural counties. It can be hard to believe how different Iowa looked just a little over 10 years ago.
1: It is good to be back.
0: Up. I had just moved to Iowa to cover politics. The 2012 caucuses were over, and I was immediately thrown into covering the ground game of both President Obama and Mitt Romney's campaigns.
2: A prairie fire of debt is sweeping across Iowa and across the nation.
0: They were battling over this state.
3: We will win Iowa again.
2: We will win this election again. It's exciting. Thank you, Iowa. What a welcome. Thank you.
0: It seems like they were here constantly. Keep in mind, Iowa has a measly six electoral votes, And they were neck and neck in the polls.
4: There's an election for U.S. president today. Would you vote for Mitt Romney or Barack Obama?
0: Mitt Romney. The night before the general election, Obama holds this massive rally in downtown Des Moines where he credits the state for his 2008 victory.
2: This is where our movement for change began.
0: Obama wins Iowa in 2012, and the state is one of the few to elect a legislature with split control. Iowa can do things different than the way they do things in Washington, D.C.
5: In two days, can you believe this?
0: Then comes Donald Trump.
5: We are going to win the great state of
3: Iowa. The projected winner in the Hawkeye state.
5: Special place.
3: Special people. Thank you. We are watching um, the map
4: change in this
3: country.
0: And Iowa only marched farther to the right these last eight years.
4: These last two election cycles have been so deeply red. We bucked the national trend and we had a great big old red wave. In this episode,
0: we're taking a look at why the state made such a hard pivot in 2016 and what are the factors altering Iowa's politics for 2024. From Iowa Public Radio in collaboration with NPR's Midwest Newsroom, this is Land. I'm Clay Masters. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. Let's think back to January of 2016.
5: And I say to my friends, because I'm here a lot and I'm going to be here so much, you're going to be so sick of me. Don't get so tired that you refuse to go to caucus. Don't do that.
0: Then-candidate Donald Trump is neck and neck with Texas Senator Ted Cruz in Iowa.
5: You know, they see you are number one in every single place except Iowa where I'm tied. And you're going to change that on February 1st. You're going to change. Everywhere else. Everywhere else I'm number one.
0: This is a campaign stop at the Bridgeview Center in Ottumwa, which is in Wapalo County. It's one of the many that flipped from Obama to Trump. His speeches always hit on the same themes, build a wall along the southern border.
5: Mexico is going to pay for the wall because they make a fortune.
0: He says other foreign leaders are smarter than American politicians.
5: I'm so tired of these weak, disgusting, corrupt politicians that we have running our country. That's what it is. They're corrupt.
0: To many in the audience, it seems off the cuff.
5: I'd love to read a speech. It would be so easy. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for being here. I love Iowa very much. It's great. Ba, 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 right? We don't do that. We speak from the heart and we speak from the brain. You know, I've, I'm fortunate.
0: I keep hearing variations of the same thing in regards to Trump ahead of this 2016 caucus. Here's Kim Johnson.
4: I like that he's not a politician, <laughs> that he's real like the rest of us. He's not just making empty promises, it sounds like, so...
0: You know, it's, it's, it's interesting for me to hear people say, he's like us, and, you know, I don't have that kind of money,
4: right? Well, I mean, he's got a lot more money, but he doesn't, like the politicians, I just don't believe anything that comes out of their mouths.
0: A lot of the people here have never caucused before, but this time, some tell me they plan to show up and back Trump, like Jordan Mockentine and Jacob Edmondson.
2: Tells it like it is. Yeah. And he doesn't need dollars to back him. He's, you know, shoots from the hip, and
0: you know, he's, he's not going to get bought now. Yeah, talks like any one of us up there, you know, from the heart and from, you know, like through his head, like he said. Michelle James says she votes in general elections, but she hasn't caucused. This time, she plans to show up for Trump.
3: Tells it like it is. He doesn't pussyfoot around. He is not afraid to be not PC.
0: Well, the border issues. Mike Short likes him.
3: Getting America back on track,
2: you know, by jobs and stuff and import and all these uh, factories and
0: stuff that are going to Mexico and other places, bring them back here and all that money. These are the kinds of things I hear at the dozen or so Trump rallies in the run-up to the 2016 caucuses.
5: One thing with me, hey, I'm leaving here, I'm going to another place, we're going to do the same thing all over again, okay?
0: Three weeks after this Otumwa speech, Trump comes in second in the Iowa caucuses. Ted Cruz wins. Unlike Trump, Cruz played the more traditional Iowa ground game of barnstorming the state, hitting all 99 counties. But when the November 2016 election comes around, Trump flips this state that had voted twice for Barack Obama. The fact that two distinctly different political ideologies captivated the same voter base is talked about a lot.
4: So obviously Iowa is a pretty white state.
0: Megan Goldberg is a political science professor at Cornell College. That's a small liberal arts school in Mount Vernon, just outside Cedar Rapids.
4: There's this, this phenomenon of Trump and the way he sort of talked about things was really an appeal to white identity in a lot of ways. And a lot of those white identity appeals also really, really coincide with rural identity appeals. And that it's not a surprise to probably anyone listening that people who are in more rural areas feel left behind. They feel looked down upon. They feel ignored.
0: Goldberg sees a dynamic with blue-collar workers and unions that goes back further to the rise of the Tea Party movement. But she says it's hard to talk about this shift without bringing up race.
4: I have family members who have talked about how Obama made race so much worse. And I think what they mean by that is that having a Black president challenged the racial hierarchy in this country in a way that was very pervasive. And Trump sort of offered this model of, like, let's correct it and take it back um let's go when we when we make america great again right we're sort of like restoring this like racial hierarchy and i think in iowa that that plays really well especially because it also i think meshes with like this rural identity that a lot of iowans have especially republican rural iowans
0: that's the thing iowa is very rural There are a few pockets of densely populated metros, think Des Moines, Cedar Rapids, or the Quad Cities, but most of Iowa's population is spread out. Now we've seen four years of a Trump presidency, followed by his effort to overthrow the 2020 election, and nearly three years of him running for the nomination again. And he's back in Iowa. Walking towards the building at the Jackson County Fairgrounds in Maquoketa, there's a line uh, that's starting to wrap around the building, still quite a few hours before the former president is scheduled to speak. It's September 2023. I'm in another one of these counties that went from Obama to Trump. Well, How long you guys have been waiting? Been I'm about an hour. I asked Cindy Dierks why she's here.
1: He's our rightful president.
0: He's our
1: what? He's our rightful president. The election was rigged. And uh, we need him. Joe
0: Biden won the 2020 election with 306 electoral college votes to Trump's 232. He also won the popular vote by more than 7 million ballots. Trump claims the election was rigged, but judges have dismissed case after case of his legal challenges. As Trump runs again, his backers like Cindy Dirick say a lot of the same things people said about him eight years ago.
1: He's not a politician. He's not DC swamp. He, uh, he suffers the pain like we suffer the pain, um, and uh, we want him back.
0: This small business owner says she actually backed Rand Paul in 2016
1: and I came to the conclusion that Trump is one of us and he loves America. I love watching him put his hand on his heart and sing the national anthem. You don't see that, with I've never seen that with any other president. And uh, I know he loves America, I know he loves us. Um, but we love him right back.
0: In 2016, Jessica Lane was for Ted Cruz, but this time around, she's all in for Trump.
1: To deal with our borders is important, but it's also, the fact is, is our infrastructure. That is the main things the federal government is supposed to be. Otherwise, the states need to run their own. And that's why I was a big supporter of Ted Cruz. Now, after that, um, like like she was saying, watching Trump, um, he is one of those guys. Does he have an ego? Absolutely. But that's also what I like about him because he's not going to let America fail and us look bad.
0: Inside the Pearson Center on the Jackson County Fairgrounds, Arnold Cundell tells me he caucused for Trump in 2016.
1: Trump I had really just went on a whim. I really didn't have him as a serious contender. It was just, what the heck, you know? <laughs> but he, he talks to us. He's exactly who, who we want.
0: The retired farmer is sitting with his wife Mary, a retired teacher. They like Trump's messages.
4: You know, um, I think Trump worked really hard at closing our gates, too, as far as the immigration issue. I think that's a huge issue. And the fact that, um, you know, that we've got all these open borders now, it's troubling that that our government is putting all of this money into these illegal, and I'm going to call them illegal, aliens.
1: We're trying to save
0: Ukraine from Russia, and I don't think... That shouldn't be any of our concerns. Our, our people in the United States should be our concerns. Arnold says he's done with politics if Trump doesn't get back in the White House. If it doesn't happen this time, I, I I'm done voting. I'm just, you, you guys can have your government. You can have whatever you want. I'm 65. I'm retired now, and, and, uh, I can't make much of an effect from here on out. You know.
5: Thank you all very much. So remember that. Get out and caucus and have a good time. Thank you, everybody.
0: Thank you. It's important to note, in 2020, the Republican National Committee did not produce a new platform. Instead, they renewed what delegates enacted in 2016. Here's Megan Goldberg from Cornell College.
4: Notably, in 2020, the RNC didn't create their own platform. They just said that we formally adopt Trump's America first, which is also much less specific. I used to have students compare party platforms, and I I really, I almost can't, do the same exercise in 2020, because they're so different. And trying to sort of answer the same questions with both platforms is impossible.
0: Now you have the former president running in a race where the platform basically pledges its allegiance to him. This is uncharted territory. And there's research explaining why Iowa's politics are changing so drastically. From Iowa Public Radio, this is Caucusland. I'm Clay Masters.
2: I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR.
0: Here we are in 2023, and Iowa politics aren't what they used to be. That Trump win in 2016, it got the attention of several researchers. Just this idea that that Iowa, which, you know, had long occupied that position as
2: sort of a moderate or a moderating political culture, um, just seemed to be polarizing very rapidly.
0: This is Dan Creer. He's an Iowa State University sociology professor. Along with his peers, Abdi Kuso and Ann Oberhauser, they studied county-level data from the U.S. Census Bureau and the Bureau of Labor Statistics— their study measured things like economic status, geographical context and social identity, and how it affects voting. Here's researcher Ann Oberhauser.
3: So we we sat down and looked at the data following the 2016 election by county and kind of bringing a sociological lens to it. Wanted to break down some of the categories and try to explain through social identities, social factors, economic factors and then looking at rurality and kind of rural issues that came up as part of the explanation.
0: Their research shows rural white voters without a college education were influential in the massive countywide shift to Republican. Creer says the results surprised him. The hypothesis
2: that I had in mind that when we would look at the data that some change in like, um, you know, economic well-being would be the driver of the vote. And what we found was that it didn't matter. That it was really social identities and rurality were really what was
0: driving the vote when we analyzed the data. Creer and Oberhauser decided to take their research further.
3: We wanted to really find out and go out and talk to people. So that's what sociologists, qualitative researchers do is, you know, talk to people and see what helps to explain some of these shifts. They made connections
0: with leaders in the community in four different counties that went from Obama to Trump. In the West, they chose Buena Vista and Clay counties. In the East, it was Clayton and Howard. The research shows many of the narratives shared by these residents were embedded in the tide of agrarian populism that came to the Midwest in the late 19th century. To get us on the same page, Creer defines what we're talking about.
2: Populism is essentially like a political ideology and a political action, political mobilization that makes an appeal to essentially an aggrieved subaltern group. So instead of appealing to elites, as um, elites are generally identified as something on the order of persecutors or perpetrators, a populist candidate makes an appeal to the people. So it's usually always a nationalistic appeal. You, the people, are being damaged and victimized by some elite.
3: Oftentimes, you know, these leaders actually are elites, the ones who are, um, you know, sounding those calls. And And there's a kind of an anti-immigrant sentiment um, that's manifest in this as well.
0: You can hear this kind of rhetoric in Trump's speeches in 2023.
5: 2024 is our final battle. With you at my side, we will demolish the deep state. We will expel the warmongers from our government. They want to go to war with everybody. We will drive out the globalists. We will cast out the communists, Marxists, and fascists. And we will throw off the sick political class that truly hates our country. We will rout the fake news media. We will defeat crooked Joe Biden. And we will end illegal immigration once and for all, just as we had it three years ago.
0: To study this populist message, Creer and Oberhauser met with these rural groups throughout 2019. Most of the
2: um, respondents gathered around the focus group table, you know, had some kind of official position of some kind. So they weren't there as individuals. They were usually there as representatives. But what we often found as the conversation began is that people would begin talking about their own personal life.
0: The respondents in this study are anonymous.
3: We had our list of questions, but it was very open-ended. It went in several different directions, depending on who was there. There are
0: quotes underlining their labor shortages. One respondent says, you probably noticed it, there's help-wanted signs that are like bolted to the building. They back Trump administration policies, even though they produce economic hardships like job losses, closed businesses, and higher prices for manufactured items. And farmers are willing to sacrifice Trump's trade wars in the short term for what they see as long-term gains for their businesses and economic interests.
3: As you were mentioning, the outmigration of young people and the aging population in rural areas is a real concern to a lot of communities. It's changing the social fabric. It's changing the schools. It's changing the churches. I was actually amazed at how
2: much people were willing to talk in muted form about their concerns about their children not coming back to the community, or that we're, we're really
0: we're not keeping, our, our kids go away to college, and don't come back, right? The study picks up on attitudes on the diversification of these small towns. One person says it's just not the same small community that it used to be because of, you know, different cultures. And then as our kids
2: leave and our, our children leave, and then we're being replaced by these outsiders who are coming in with, you know, their strange foods and dialects and so on.
0: Another says immigrants are not fitting into the quote local community because they strain the police system and did not like the local cuisine. It's really interesting. I remember the one man who we were talking
2: about the demographic change in the community and the and the community response to uh, racial change and and. Uh, and this man had uh, began talking about um, his son. I think married a Latinx woman, and um, and that changed. It's just like like he, he, he just the warmth that came out of him, and the the you could just see that he personally had. Reframed his thinking and had a different sort of advocacy position, even um, because of that ran counter. Daughter-in-law. Yeah, that I think ran counter to like his political position and so on. But it, it came about because of of, of intermarriage,
3: quite honestly. Yeah. That was in Storm Lake. Yeah, the Storm yeah. Lake area.
0: Oberhauser points out many respondents also express resentment against demographically and economically advantaged areas.
3: You know, they refer to the Golden Dome, and they refer to all the resources go to Des Moines and go to these urban areas, and they don't get, um, you know, the payback, or they don't get their share of the resources, which... If you look at the farm and agricultural subsidies, and a lot of other subsidies, there's not much truth to that. Uh, but there's this this sentiment mentality about you know the urbanites and the city folks, and you know rural folks. We work the we work the soil. We you know work hard for our living. Um, that came out quite a bit, and there's part of that too. I think is like an anti-intellectual um, sentiment party membership
0: has become a core identity for people and they have an increasingly negative feeling for the opposing party.
2: Democrats feel really uh, negatively towards the, you know, uh, Donald Trump, Trumpism and so on. And then again, like that's basically the framing of the MAGA movement and Trumpism is that the other party is terrible and the other people are. So just that, that that you're willing essentially. So now we've gone from a place. Well, I was just moderate place, it, so now we
3: What other. we're hearing more are, are, are the extremes, I think, on both sides. Or on, it's definitely on the Republican side, more of the extreme wing. The extremes have hijacked. They, they now control the narrative.
0: Towards the end of the interview, I ask a big-picture question. So based on all the research that you've done, I want to go to a place that's devoid of all political reality. What what an amazing world. But what advice would you give a campaign to move away from this divisive rhetoric to help for the betterment of rural communities and not just about winning an election? Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
3: I think you have to speak to people's everyday lives and the struggles because people are struggling. They're living paycheck to paycheck. They're trying to find good child care for their kids. Um, You know, they're just trying to get through the the crop cycle. And I think rationally, sanely speaking to those issues in a way which is not divisive, um, which maybe is impossible (laughs) because people have such strong opinions, uh, you know, would resonate and would just make people feel better about the politicians in power.
2: I have almost no advice. I... I'm—I honestly, it's so much easier to destroy something than to build something. And, um, there is a destructive movement underway. It's, it's an astonishing thing to, to actually have a political party, um— Orienting itself around destruction, and we know how hard it is. I mean, we all have seen it in our everyday life when you lose memory and you lose, you lose people who were um, really skilled and trained, and and uh, man, you lose that. It's really hard to get it back.
0: This research shows how the language and framing of populism and identity movements on the political right are integrated into the political culture of rural America. Former President Trump's rhetoric gave it voice in 2016 at the highest level. And we're continuing to see it as he's running for the Republican presidential nomination again. Next time on Caucus Land.
5: We've gotta leave the chaos and the negativity and the drama behind us.
0: A once crowded field of Republicans is shrinking, and the caucuses are the former presidents to lose. If he beats you know the next closest candidate by 30 points, that's not a contest right? I mean, that's the Harlem Globetrotters. How the cycle is playing out in the run-up to the caucuses. This podcast is produced by me, Clay Masters, and John Pemble. Editorial support from Iowa Public Radio News Director Michael Leland and the NPR Midwest Newsroom's Chris Husted and Holly Edgel. Our music is composed by Garrett Schmid. Don't forget to rate and share the show. There's also a whole first season of Caucusland from four years ago if you want more history. You can find it all at IPR.org. Caucusland is a production of Iowa Public Radio News.